presenting this month's special series, Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Adolescent obesity. When does surgery become the best treatment option? You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Well, I'm Dr. Mary Luchard, your host, and joining me today from New York is Dr. Christine Wren. Dr. Wren is Associate Professor of Surgery at the NYU School of Medicine, and she's considered by many to be the leading lap band surgeon in the United States. She is a board-certified general surgeon. Today, we're discussing the surgical management of adolescent obesity. Welcome, Dr. Wren, and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. What's the exact age group we're talking about? We're talking about 12 to 17-year-olds. And it's a very touchy, I think the 12 and 13-year-olds are a very touchy group. Certainly 14 to 17 is a much safer population because the emotional and the mental development is pretty much complete by the age 14. That's very, very important when we're talking about surgery. Do you have a particular interest in this age group? I certainly do, and because this is one of the fastest growing problems in this age group, obesity and the adolescents. And what we all do know is that an overweight adolescent has an 85% chance of becoming an obese or morbidly obese adult. So if you do not approach the obese adolescent in their younger stages, then their later years will be much, much worse health-wise. The morbidly obese adolescent is now developing adult-onset-type medical problems. So medically, these teenagers are having the same diseases as their older parents or their grandparents, which is a startling fact that we're seeing. Equally as disturbing is that this is a time that young adults are developing in their social skills, in their independent personalities, in schools, and their job opportunities. There's a tremendous effect on their emotional development if they're morbidly obese and a tremendous impact on their schooling opportunities or in their job opportunities because of discrimination. In your particular patient population, is there a difference in sex distribution in the adolescent patients who are obese? Are there more females than males or equal kind of weighting? It appears that not only in the adolescents but also in the adults that the gender that primarily comes for surgery is the morbidly obese female. And um, there's a lot of theories why maybe women are less frightened to come for surgery or they have a greater respect for the health implications that morbid obesity has for them, whereas men may not feel that their obesity is impacting their health or their lifestyle. But as far as the adolescents go, it's mostly girls that are coming than boys. And how do you deal with, number one, this tricky age group, and then secondly, obviously their parents have to be involved too. It mustn't be an easy process sometimes to talk about surgery in such a young age. Absolutely. That's why we have our research study under the FDA and an IRB protocol that we're looking at 14 to 17-year-olds primarily for surgery. And they really have to go through quite an extensive evaluation preoperatively. Number one, the most important thing is it has to be the child's idea. 
It has to be their decision. We have found that the one predictive factor that we see that will tell you if it's going to go well or not go well is if it's not the adolescent's decision and the parents are pressuring the adolescent to have surgery, they're not going to do very well because they will act like an adolescent and rebel and not do what they're supposed to. But if it's the the child's decision, they do very, very well because they're motivated, they own the decision, and they'll be much more compliant. They certainly have to have a good understanding of what the surgery is and all the changes that they have to make afterwards. Now, you may say, well, these are just teenagers, but it's interesting. They are very astute. They've done a lot of research on the Internet, and certainly they're evaluated by our adolescent psychologist. The family, the parents are interviewed by our child psychologist, and they're also evaluated by our our nutritionist. So there's many levels that they have to go through in order to be evaluated for surgery and determined to be candidates. Is there greater concern in this particular patient population about nutritional deficiency postoperatively because they're still growing theoretically? That's a very important question. I think when you're talking about gastric bypass for adolescents, I have a very strong concern about nutritional aspects because in gastric bypass, we know that calcium is not absorbed properly, iron is not absorbed properly, vitamin B is not absorbed properly, and protein is not. And so that's where you have to be concerned about nutritional issues. And that's why, you know, there's been a case of beriberi in a teenager after gastric bypass because in a gastric bypass, the adolescent has to be compliant with supplements. And nobody likes to take supplements because they're feeling great, they're losing weight, they're not going to take their supplements. On the contrary, with lap band, gastric banding, there's no malabsorption. So, yes, we tell them to take a multivitamin, but there's no malabsorption. So they're absorbing every single thing they're taking in. They're just eating less. But in order to ascertain that there's no effect on their nutritional status and development, we do rigorous testing every three months for the first year, and then annually we do a full panel of nutritional values. In addition, we do DEXA scanning to look at bone growth and development and loss of lean body fat and fat mass. And what we found in our early data in the first two years, that number one, there is some iron deficiency, not all, because the girls are starting to menstruate, which has been responding to supplements. And also in the DEXA scanning, that actually the bone density is actually improving as the adolescents are are losing weight and, and growing older. If you're just joining us, I'm your host, Dr. Mary Lushaz, and I'm talking with Dr. Christine Wren from NYU, and we're talking about weight loss surgery in adolescents. Dr. Wren, have you ever had any adolescent patients who've developed an eating disorder such as anorexia post-surgically? We have had a patient develop an eating disorder, and she was actually hospitalized, and it's, and this is one girl in a little bit over 100 patients. And I think that that's, they're, they're going to be out there. And so she recognized it. Her parents recognized it. She received therapy. We loosened her band, obviously, in order to help her eat more because she was getting too thin. And once she addresses that, then we'll retighten her band. But that's the beauty of the band. We can actually temporarily reverse it by loosening it 
because we do see our adolescents monthly for the first year. And we not only tighten their band in order to achieve optimal appetite suppression and early satiety, but we also counsel them on behavioral modification, on nutritional choices, and on increasing activity. And can you describe in detail how you loosen that? Is that a saline injection? Yes. The band is actually connected to a metaport that is secured to the abdominal muscles underneath the skin. And they simply come into the office, we'll take a non-coring needle, access the metaport, and inject saline. And this saline actually travels and goes into the balloon, the inner balloon of the band, and it squeezes around the stomach. How robust are all these devices? I mean, you're putting them in at such an early age. What's a life expectancy? I guess, to be honest, it's unknown because the bands have been around for about 15 years now. So they've lasted for 15 years, and theoretically, they should last forever. What's the average BMI an adolescent patient can expect after lap band surgery? Their average BMI will come down to, on average, the high 20s, 27, 28. So the average starting BMI has been 45, they'll come down to about 28. And what do you find is the general educational level of adolescents in terms of what foods they should be eating? The adolescent, the average adolescent knows what's good and what's bad because by the time they reach us, they have been to Weight Watchers since they were seven. They've been to multiple fat camps. They've been on multiple diets, so they know what's good and bad. The thing about teenagers is they don't want to look like freaks with their friends. When they go out to the mall on Friday night, their friends are going to be going to McDonald's. So we have to respect their social place in the world and with their friends. So part of our counseling is not only to help them lose weight, but not look like strange people. So if they go to McDonald's, we'll say, okay, well, instead of having a shake, have a Diet Coke. Instead of having a Big Mac, have the salad there, or even have the the chicken breast sandwich. So we try to work within the constraints of their social livelihood. You mentioned fat camp. Can you tell me about fat camp? There's multiple fat camps in the United States, and these kids go away for six weeks, eight weeks, and basically they're on a very low-calorie regimented diet. They have exercise and activities every day. They have recreational activities, and they talk about their emotions. So it's similar to an adult inpatient center, such as perhaps Duke's inpatient weight loss center. But this is usually in the summertime, and it's all morbidly obese kids. And is this something you organize, or is this a government-funded? Oh, no, no, no. This is all usually privately run camps, and it's a very popular thing in the United States. You can send your kids to basketball camp, to football camp, to acting camp, and then there's fat camp. I imagine adolescents wouldn't be very keen to tell their friends that they're off to fat camp rather than basketball camp. It's a very embarrassing thing. And, you know, we have a lot of kids who get homeschooled because they've been so abused and made fun of and ridiculed by their their peers that they cannot no longer go to school and they get homeschooled. The most amazing thing is that we've had all these kids that we've operated on that were homeschooled, they're back in school. 
And how do you find that friends of adolescents who undergo lap banding or weight loss surgery react to their friends having the procedure? Are they supportive? I've been surprised. The majority of them are very supportive. I would have thought that many of the friends or the peers would have been sort of ridiculing them, but they really have done very well and I've not heard of anyone that's, that's been not supportive. Dr. Wren, how can listeners learn more about the procedures that you do and somewhere they can refer potential patients for this type of surgery? Well, you can visit our website. It's www.nyuweightloss.org. And that's the NYU Program for Surgical Weight Loss website. It's very comprehensive. It tells you about us. It tells you about who's involved with the program, what operations we perform, what clinical trials that we have, and what to expect afterwards. We also have links to a variety of support groups. Well, thanks very much for joining me today, Dr. Wren. We've been discussing surgical weight loss in adolescence. I'm Dr. Mary Lushaz. We welcome your comments and questions through our website at reachmd.com, which now features our entire medical show library in on-demand podcasts. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals.